please be seated. Let me invite you to open your Bibles to Psalm 19 this morning. Psalm 19 is a beautiful celebration of God's revelation. The first part of this psalm is a recognition and a celebration of God's revelation of himself through creation. The second part is the celebration of God's revelation of himself through, specifically through his word. And then it finishes with an appropriate response to those who have been enraptured by God's uh, revelation. Our focus this morning will be on the second part in terms of, of his word beginning in verses seven and reading, verse 7 and reading through uh, verse 11. Before we consider the word, let's go to the Lord in prayer. Our Father, we do give thanks to you that your word has been given to us, that we may know you and even know ourselves. But more important, that your word points us to Christ in whom we live and breathe and have our being. And I pray, Lord, that by your Holy Spirit now, you would open our minds and our hearts, that as the word is read, as the word is considered, as the word is taught, that you would renew our minds and open our hearts, that we may be shaped in a way that brings you honor and brings joy to us and to those around us. Lord, be at work during this time. We pray in Christ and for his sake. Amen. Psalm 19, verse 7. The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The rules of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. More to be desired are they than gold, even much fine gold, sweeter also than honey and drippings of the honeycomb. Moreover, by them is your servant warned, and keeping them there is great reward." May the Lord give us understanding from his holy word. As I was looking at this passage this week, and even as I was reading it again, it just crossed my mind that this is, a, this is one of those passages in Scripture that one who is a skeptic might actually gain more benefit than one who is a, a, a typical believer. Uh, because a typical believer, or at least a religious person, is going to look at these verses and they're going to acknowledge the beauty of the poetry and just uh, recognize, okay, it's God's word, and they're going to just kind of move on, just accept it with unquestioningly and uncritically. Whereas the person with a healthy dose of skepticism is likely to ask questions. They're going to uh, want to investigate the claims and then consider the case of the passages made here. The person who is somewhat skeptical is going to be shocked because one of the things that we need to note here is that the author of this, the psalmist, King David, he makes a rather audacious statement, one that for all, those of us who tend to be more religious, we sing it, but we don't really think about it. And having not thought about it, it may or may not be true uh, in terms of expression of our personal values. 
Because what we see in this passage in verse 10 is that David is saying is that the word of God is to be desired more than gold and is sweeter than honey. And that's an amazing statement. It does make for a nice song, but it is an amazing statement when you consider it. And it is an audacious statement. And the reason I say it's audacious is because I don't believe that that's the experience of most people, including the experience of most who are Christians. We may value, we may recognize that there is value in the word, but for us to say that we desire the opportunity to spend time in God's word more than wealth, or we believe that what God has spoken to us is sweeter to us than sugar, honey, that just seems almost like hyperbole. I think most of us are probably more in tune if we would, uh, we would acknowledge it with a song that I heard while I was driving a lot this, uh, the, the past couple of weeks. It's been on the country charts this week, uh, I mean, this, um, this particular summer, um, that is called Buy Me a Boat by Chris Jansen, because the, you may or may not be familiar with it, but in this, part of the lyric says this, I know they say that money can't buy happiness, but it can buy me a boat, and it can buy me a truck to pull it. <laughs> and it seems reasonable, you know? I mean, well, money itself might not give me happiness, but a lot of the things that I think that will bring me happiness can be purchased uh, with money, and so it's not that wealth that's stacked up in the bank, but it's that. I, th I think that that's probably more reflective of the experience of most people, Christian and non-Christian alike. We may recognize as believers, we've committed ourselves to come to a time to worship God and to hear the word of God. But day to day, moment by moment, the reality is most of us would never be willing to exchange our security that we have from our wealth simply for an opportunity to be able to read God's word. And so that's why I say that somebody who's a skeptic actually may be beneficial because they're gonna look at that and say, you gotta be kidding me. And why would I think this is the case? Now, as we look at Psalm 19, and I hope that those of you who are here who are skeptics will be benefited, and I hope those of you here who are believers will ask the questions that the skeptic would ask, and that this morning we would actually investigate the claims and that we would consider the case that, the, that David is making here in this psalm. Because as we look at the psalm, we see that there is a rep repetitive pattern here, and David makes six claims, six promises. We're going to look at four of them, not that the other two are not important, but Time is part of that, and the last two that we see here are slightly different. But there are six different reflections or words that are being used that talk about the, the Word of God. And then corresponding with that, there are, are six promises. And the value of God's Word to us, what makes it more precious than gold, what makes it sweeter than honey, is found in these promises that accompany the Word of God. And so as we look at this passage, let's consider those claims. Let's see whether or not that what David says is accurate. And the first statement that we see that David makes is that being perfect, the law revives our soul. We, we see that in, in verse 7. The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. Now, in what sense is the law perfect? Well, one thing that I've said and need bears repeating and that we need to repeat to ourselves is that the law of God is a reflection of the character of God. And since every law that is found in the scriptures shares, shows us something of the personality and the value and the holiness of God, well, since God is perfect, then the law that he's revealed is perfect, both in the principles and in its totality. 
Another thing we need to recognize here is that the word that is translated law in most of our, our New Testament, uh, most of our translations, in Hebrew is Torah, which is actually the most general word for, uh, for all of God's revelation uh, that we find in the scripture. So the Torah is not just the specific statutes or, or laws, but the Torah is all of, particularly the Old Testament, but really it's all of the, the scripture itself. Sometimes you hear, at least as Jesus was speaking about the law and the prophets, a shorthand for saying Old Testament, except at the time it wasn't the Old Testament, it was the only testament. And so as the psalmist here, as he's writing and saying, your Torah is more precious than gold and your uh, your, and it's sweeter than honey. Your Torah, your word is perfect. And we recognize that it's perfect because it is God who has given to us. But that said, we also need to recognize that there's a specific aspect in which the psalmist means that it's perfect here. And most Old Testament scholars would tell us what they have in mind here is the scope is perfect. Not just the words themselves, not just the concept, not just in pointing to God, but that it's perfect. It applies to every aspect of our life. There is no aspect in which this word um, is, is, is irrelevant. It's complete. It's without blemish, and it's lacking nothing. Uh, theologian and pastor James Boyce put it this way. It is so complete that it covers every aspect of life. Therefore, no matter what our sins um, they have, may have been, or what our problems are, the Bible is able to turn us from our sins, lead us through our problems, and both feed and enrich us so that we can enjoy the full benefits of the spiritual life. And another old, uh, old Scottish um, minister had put it this way, the word can furnish the soul uh, all that it needs to be restored with whatever suits its case. In other words, the word is perfect because it applies to all of us, any of us, at all times and at any times and in any circumstance. And so the psalmist who has experienced that has said, look, your word is perfect. Your Torah is perfect. And because it's perfect, it revives the soul. Now, the word revive itself means give life. I mean, give or give life again. In other, you, know, you know the word viva. Uh, means to live, you know, like Viva Las Vegas. We won't sing it, but you know, some of you have seen it. That means long, you know, live, uh, live in La live Las Vegas, and and then the re would just mean again. And so it talks about making alive again. In one sense, it's God who created man who was alive, and then we became dead in our sin. It's to make alive again. And then it's also speaking to those of us who have been dead in sin or have been believers, and now our hearts tend to be hard or cold toward God. That we just seem feel distant away from God it is able to renew or to revive and bring life to us and to to allow us to live again and one of the things that this particular passage I think speaks to is a very common condition that we overlook it's a very important principle that we need to make sure that we understand and that that is is the the soul which is referred to here it revives the soul the soul is just the inner being it's a it's a general statement of the inner aspect of who we are it's also used synonymously with heart in the scripture, which has nothing to do with the one that beats, but heart is just an all-encompassing of our inner nature, our spirituality, where our spirituality is rooted. And in the scriptures, and in biblical spirituality, the heart is what is central. We need to be very 
careful, very clear, that Christianity is not, in its essence, a set of rules and behaviors. It is a relationship that is with God. We know that this is true. The essence of the law itself is not about behavior, but the essence of the law is, is love. Jesus, when he was asked what is the greatest law, he says, love the Lord your God with all your heart, your mind, and your strength, and love others. The essence of Christianity is related to the heart, and then from the heart is where behavior flows. And the reason that is significant is because the scripture also tells us something about our hearts. Our hearts are deceitful and untrustworthy. Our hearts are unreliable and they uh, tend to waver. Our affections are scattered and can be easily shattered. And sometimes they become hardened. In other words, we just don't care. We may go through the motions. We may know what is right and do what is right. But it's not out of a vibrancy. It's not necessarily out of an affection. And it's a very common, a very common thing. Remember John Piper, I think, had put that it's a, uh, written at one time that the normal Christian life is, is the repeated process of the restoration and the renewal. Our joy, our hearts are not static. And it fluctuates in real life. I think that's the experience that we've all had. Some of us tend to be in denial, others uh, recognize that and we just don't know what to do about it. We may pretend that it's not true because we are afraid of what others might say. We are afraid of what it might say of us. But this is what the scripture reveals about our hearts and that our hearts are central. And life is a continual cycle of need of being renewed for our hearts to be revived. And the promise here is that God's word will bring life. It will bring, renew life. It will renew the soul, renewing the heart. And so this is an important message for all of us who are here today because it's a message for those who are not believers, who may be the true skeptics, because it's telling you that there is life. Whatever you're experiencing right now, the God who has created all things has said that there is life, and he will bring life out of that which is already dead. There's a beautiful picture in the Old Testament in Ezekiel where Ezekiel was called to go to the graveyard and to preach to dry bones. Now, if bones are dry, they're pretty dead. There was nothing left on them. And as he preached, God brought life. There was a historic element that also is allegorical for us to understand. What it cannot happen, happened. Because God who created all things and can make all things new brought life out of that which was completely dead. And then also spiritually, when we are dead and apart from God, God can breathe life into you. And it comes by understanding his word, which points to life that is ours in Christ. The word can bring new joy and restore, revive the heart of the person who's a Christian who's burned out. And it can bring renewal and joy to and revive the heart of the Christian who may be burned out and doesn't even know it. I don't know if you've seen the movie The Others. It's a long, old, old movie. Uh, well, not old, old, just old, kind of. But anyway, Nicole Kidman uh, is the star of it, and it's a, it's a ghost movie. And throughout this, there are, there are other people living in Nicole Kidman's house, and she's trying to protect her children from these other people who are living in her house. And at the end of the movie, and I'm going to ruin it for you if you haven't seen it, but if you haven't seen it by now, you probably weren't going to see it anyway. Um, but uh, at the end of the movie, 
there's a subtle twist or a significant twist that we, you just didn't see what's coming. The whole movie is focused on Nicole Kidman, who is not able to interact with these, these people that are in her house, and she's trying to protect her kids. But what is revealed is that the other people, the people who live there, Nicole Kidman and her children, are actually the ghosts. They're the ones that are dead, and they just didn't know it. What's a sad but a real picture of many Christians as well, who have once lived, and yet while they have not lost their salvation, they have lost their zeal and their passion, they're, they're, just, they're just going through the motions, and they don't even know that their heart is hardened and that they are dead. It's a reminder that we all need to continue to wonder, to ask ourselves, where, where are we and what's going on in our lives? But it doesn't matter where you are, whether you are apart from Christ, whether you are burned out, or whether you're just not sure what the problem is. The promise here is that the word of God will revive you, will revive the joy, it will revive your life. We see a second promise that's made here as well. The second promise also in verse 7 uh, tells us that being trustworthy, the word of God or, or the law makes the simple wise. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. And the word testimony here indicates to us that that which has been attested to by God himself, because it's talking about testimony, this is what God has said. Anytime that we're looking at this scripture, this is what God has said. And if God has said it, he is testifying that this is the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth. And so the word is here is, is a very powerful word, and it says that this has been testified by God, and because the word is perfect, it can be trusted. It provides a necessary guidance for functional day-to-day -day living. It's not entirely unlike a sign that I've saw, signs that I've seen in the past few weeks that have been in the mountains of western North Carolina in very, very, very windy roads, and so the signs will tell me that there's a very windy road or that I need to slow down. There is a warning and a guidance and a direction that tells me where it is I need to go and how I need to go. The word functions in that way, and it really also indicates the difference between foolishness and wisdom because the difference really rests in the fact that the wise do what's good and what's right, and the foolish do whatever they want and usually find at some point their decisions are tragic. What the psalmist is saying here is that the, because the word is trustworthy, it makes those who are simple wise. Now here it's not talking about intelligence. Intelligence is nothing more than your intellectual capacity, and there are many people who are incredibly intelligent, and yet they continue to be very foolish. But we need to understand that the scripture, Proverbs in particular, really types three kinds of people that, that exist that the scriptures tend to have in view. The wise person is the one who is aware of God and God's covenant, embracing that, and then is continually learning to live their life in conformity and in light of God's promises and God's covenant with them. The fool is the person who rejects God and his covenant and then lives their life on their own way. And the simple is the person who hasn't really made a commitment one way or the other. For whatever the reason, lack of information, uh, the gospel hasn't yet come to them or it hasn't been made clear, they have not, uh, God has not been at work within them, or because they still are holding on to whatever it is that they think uh, as opposed to submitting to what God has said. And so they're not rejecting the word but they're not embracing the word either. They're just still not enlightened. They still have not um, made, the, made the commitment uh, to the word of God. And it's really this kind of person that is in view here. The person who 
lacks understanding, the person who in, in some ways is ignorant, the person who is prone to be unstable, the word of God is a tool that will make that person who is simple and bring them to being somebody who is wise. Somebody who not only understands God and who they are in relationship to God because of Christ, but a person who now has a tool, a guide that is able to give them wisdom to live their lives. And as they submit themselves to that and they conform themselves to what God has said, the way that life is supposed to work, it's not that their intellectual capacity has gone up. It's that now they have made good choices. Now they have submitted to the one who knows all, the one who loves them more than they understand, and they find that life works much better that way. They have now become wise. Whereas the fool says in his heart, not only is there no God, but this word is irrelevant. And there, as I said, there are many, many intelligent fools that are around us. In fact, the scripture tells us, 1 Corinthians 1, 19 through 21, tells us, there's what God says, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, the intelligence of the intelligent, I will frustrate. In other words, there are certain people, some people, many people, and many people who live in this community who have incredible intellectual capacity. They know a lot of things about a lot of things, and yet they are walking without God. And, and they consider their intelligence the barrier to embracing what seems foolish to them. That life is found in a Jewish carpenter who lived 2,000 years ago and who was killed by the government authorities and in whose followers claimed that he was risen from the dead. Their intellect says, first of all, dead people don't rise. Second is somebody who lived 2,000 years ago has got no influence on my life today. He didn't even live in this area. And so how can this, and so their intellect gets in the way and God allows that for whatever reason and he says that I'm going to, I will destroy the wisdom of the people who consider themselves wise and I will, in the intelligence of the intelligent, I will frustrate because they never achieve what they want. And I saw this illustrated vividly in an article that I saw uh, that came out this week, at least online, that will be in the ESPN, the magazine coming. Some of you who are sports fans may know the name of Arian Foster. He's a running back for the Houston, um, for the Houston Texans. And Arian Foster is a very, very intelligent young man. He's very articulate and he's very thoughtful. All of that should not be a surprise because he is an alumnus of the University of Tennessee. Um, <laughs> um, and yet, he's essentially come out of the closet in his own way, in his own estimation, and he says, he, he says this, everybody has always says the same thing, you have to have faith. But that's the whole thing, faith isn't enough for me. So here's an intelligent guy who's looking at claims as he's understood them, having gone to college in the Bible Belt in East Tennessee, now living in Houston, Texas, which is, you know, another notch on that Bible Belt. And he's hearing people talking about Jesus and the necessity of faith, and then he's comparing the claims of the Scripture to his own intellectual understanding, which is tremendous. And yet his own intellect is what's getting in the way for giving him any hope. And so he now, coming out, has become a poster person for a group of a public movement of, of atheists. Again, he's a wonderful picture for us to understand. He's a good guy. He's an intelligent guy. He, you know, this is not some depraved individual in the sense that we would look at them and, and want to run from him. But it's a reminder that, of what is being said here. 
there are fools, and life doesn't work in the end for them. And oftentimes, they don't understand why it's not working for them during life. But for the ones who wonder, the ones who realize, I don't know everything, and this does seem to be a strange claim that my hope is found in the death and resurrection of someone else. But I also know that I don't have the answers. And so I can choose to rest on my own understanding and my own intellectual capacity, whether it's great or whether it's limited. But if it's truly great, I understand that it is limited. Or I can trust that these words were spoken by the living and true God who has condescended to us to speak to us so that we would know how life really works and I could submit my life to him. Those who are willing to become simple, which is not only a position, it's also an attitude, who recognize I don't know everything, I need to submit myself to God, actually become those who are the wisest of all. And those who positionally make themselves simple so that they can become wise, who have a great intellectual capacity, and many of you do, and we're going to be flooded with others who clearly do. They, get, they didn't get into William and Mary without it. Are able to find the beauty of the revelation of God, the beauty of God, how God relates to us by now understanding God's word and using their intellect to understand it more deeply. It makes us wise. There's a third claim as well that we see beginning in verse 8. And it's this, that being right, the precepts of the Lord give joy to the heart. That's what verse 8 says, the precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. Now, some of you may say, well, haven't we already been here? I mean, we just, 10 minutes ago, we talked about the heart, right? And the answer is, yeah, we have been there. And in another sense, no, we have not. So what we talked about earlier is the fact that the word of God gives life to the heart. And this passage is talking about giving joy to the heart. One of my favorite lines from the movie Braveheart comes at the end, uh, just before um, William Wallace is taken out in order to be tortured. And speaking to the future queen, he makes this statement when she says, look, if you don't cave, you're going to die. And he says, every man dies, but not every man really lives. And the reason that that always speaks to me is it's a constant reminder whenever I think about that, that life is more than breathing and eating and drinking and sleeping and rising. Life is far more than a biological process. And that's what he's saying. We all are going to die, but not everybody really lives. Well, if life is simply characterized by biological process for however many days that we have walking this earth, well, then that would be a foolish statement. But there's something about that statement that really strikes in most of us because we know that there's more to life. There's more to life than just those things. Taken from another movie, I think that, it, that always sticks with me is uh, from the Dead Poet Society, when um, when John Keating, the because guy that was played by Robin Williams, is trying to convince his students of the importance of poetry. He kind of goes on a, a beautiful rant, a mini sermon, and he, he says this. We don't read and write poetry because it's cute. We read and write poetry because we are members of the human race. And the human race is filled with passion and with medicine and law and business and engineering. These are noble pursuits and necessary to sustain life. But poetry, beauty, romance, love, these are the things that we stay alive for. And I think in that 
picture there, he's actually saying something similar to what is being promised here. In other words, there are certain things that we need in this life in order to actually continue to live, to be alive, to have life. Those are biological and other structural things. But you don't really live if that's all you have. And it's the beauty and it's the joy that makes life worth living. It's what we live for. It's what we strive for, what we desire. And what's beautiful about this is that God is not simply saying, okay, live or die, your choice, as if it's just a matter of biological function. He's promising to give joy, which means he recognizes that what we desire is joy is actually something that he wants to give us. He wants us to have. And the promise of this passage is that the word of God will give us the very joy that we are desiring. And that's important for us because, again, life is a series of difficulties that need to be overcome, all of which threaten to rob us of our joy. And yet the promise of God is not only that he would restore life, but he would grant us joy. And that comes in his word. And then the final thing that we're going to look at is also found in verse 8, and it's, it's this. Because they are radiant, the commands of God give light to the eyes. Verse 8, the commandment of the Lord is pure. In other words, what God has said is not mixed with anything else. It comes from the pure holiness of God himself and what he has dictated, what he has given to us uh, in his word and his command. It's, it's pure. Enlightening the eyes. I know that many of us have heard the phrase that the eye is the window to the soul. It's also important that we recognize the eye is the tool by which we see the world. But we see the world darkly. And we are in need of being enlightened for more light to be shed on the subject. When we see things in the dark, we can make them out, but we don't have clarity. And some of the things that we think we see are not what we think we see at all. You may have seen in the newspaper that there was apparently a sighting of Bigfoot in western North Carolina this past week. I was there the week before. I didn't see him. But, um, and I was looking at the story, and I assumed that the guy had seen him kind of at dusk. It actually was relatively early in the morning, uh, a little later than dawn. But the reason I assumed that is because most of the sightings of Bigfoot, or if you're in New Jersey, the New Jersey Devil. New Jersey Devil was seen by some people. A number of people have seen him over the years, always at night and always after they've been drinking. But, um, and so... They're not sure of what they're seeing. But whenever there's been a Bigfoot sighting or one of those kinds of sighting, what inevitably happens is when more light is shed on the subject, if there was a way of putting more light, you were able to see more clearly what looks like what's being interpreted. And I suspect the same is going to be true if it's not just an out-and-out -out fraud that this guy you know, photoshopped into, the, into his video, whatever it looked like that he's claiming to have been a Sasquatch. Um, if more light was brought onto the subject, then you would say, oh, it's not what it, it looked like, and we would be able to identify what it is. Well, the reality is we live this life, and we all experience, we all see things, and we all interpret what we see. But we don't always see what we think we see. And we are in need of more light being brought into the subject and identifying for us. And what the promise here is the Word of God enables us to see the world more clearly. We're able to identify things that we are seeing. We're able to interpret them because the Word of God not only gives us the lens that our eyes are able to see through, 
but it brings light to them and we're able to interpret whatever's going on that we see in the news, whatever it is that we are experiencing. We begin to understand this is normal, this is abnormal. This is good, this is not so good. The word of God gives us the light that we desire that actually therefore is related to the wisdom because the clearer we are able to see because our lives have been enlightened, the more we're able to react in good ways, in wise ways to the circumstances that we encounter. So we look at this particular passage and we see these four promises. Again, there are two others that we see in verse 9. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The rules of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. And those are worthy of consideration. I don't have time, and the reason I separated those out is not just for the time, but they're slightly different kinds of claims that go along with them. They're related and are worth uh, meditating on. But even just taking the four promises here, we're not exhaustive of the promises of God through his word, but just these four promises... Remember the audacious statement that David makes that we see in the passage. It says the word of God is more valuable than gold, more to be desired more than gold, and it's sweeter than honey. And while that seems to be hyperbole at the very best, think about the promises that God says accompany the understanding and the feeding on his word. Life, joy, Wisdom, understanding. What are those worth? I don't know how you quantify that. But I do know people spend a fortune speaking with counselors and teachers and gurus and self-help book just trying to get any of those things. And that those who are wealthiest find that their wealth isn't giving them satisfaction and they'll pour their wealth out in order to gain joy, wisdom, to have life, to have understanding. And so you may one be continue to be skeptical and saying, okay, I don't know if it'll actually do it, but you do see that the statement that David had experienced in his own life, that the word of God, despite the fact that he had everything, that the word of God was worth more than all the wealth that he possessed, more worth, than gold, worth more than gold. And it's a challenge for us, if we have not experienced that it's worth more, to investigate that for ourselves. If it's not sweeter, then what is sweeter than knowing that you are loved by the God of the universe and it has given us the understanding that we stand in him. To be loved despite ourselves, by one who knows us better than we know ourselves, that we can't hide from him and he loves us anyway. That's a sweet thing question is, how do we get it? I mean, the word is there whether we appropriate it or not. Just because David is saying that, there's a whole world of people who may be looking for it, but they don't have it. We who have the word may still be searching for these characteristics, or even those of us who have experienced it, we long for more. And so one thing we need to understand is that there is no way other than a steady diet of being in God's word, not just reading it, but reading it, questioning it, asking, what does that mean? What is that promising? How does that apply to my life? Thinking about the principles and the promises over and over and over again. We may not feel the change that's taking place immediately, but the promise of God is that it will be at work. But the funny thing is, is that we look at the Bible, so many of us who are believers, with such unrealistic expectations, both in terms of thinking that it's going to do 
something immediately and then failing to believe that it's going to do what it says ultimately. In other words, many of us read the Bible and want to feel immediately the change taking place in our life as if it's kind of like Popeye squeezing the can of spinach, eating it, and then its forearms kind of bulge out. And when we read the Bible and we have all these promises and we don't experience the immediate transformation, we assume it must not be true. But the person who has invested himself, and David was one of them, in the diet, steady diet of reading the Word. Now, steady diet doesn't mean that you have to e-read it every single day. That's not a bad thing. Somebody once asked, I heard that somebody, a teacher was once asked, how often should I read the Bible? He said, well, I don't know. How often do you want to read the Bible? He said, let me ask you another question. How often should you eat? Different people tell you different things. But we do know certain things. If you didn't eat today, didn't have breakfast, or you don't eat at all today, that may not be an indication that there's a problem. If you haven't eaten since June, there's a problem, right? So there's a line somewhere. How often are you hungry? If you're hungry for the Bible every single day and you are eating it, meditating it, and, and it, it will bring a transformation in your life. If somebody's saying that you have to do this as a duty, it's not a bad duty, but the duty itself is not going to bring life. And so the question is, how often am I hungry for it? How often do I need to know? And if it's daily that I'm hungry for it, wonderful. If it's every, you know, several times a week, that's probably good. If it's once a year or even only once a week when it's being read, there's probably a problem that we need to ask ourselves rather than giving you a rule, but it's a steady diet of feeding on the Word. And the other reason that we need to see, and the reason, the thing that I want to finish here with this morning, is the reason that it's valuable is also because of who it points to and who it abides. We are told in John chapter 1 that the Word, which is the same as Torah, in the beginning was with God, and the Word was God. And the word came and dwelt among us for a while. See, what makes this more valuable than gold is because of who this re represents and points us to. The writer of Hebrews in Hebrews chapter 1 tells us, look, in the past God spoke to us in many and various ways, but in these last days he speaks to us by his son, who is the exact exact representation of God. See, this word is more precious than gold because it is through this word and through the person that it represents that we know God. It tells us of God. It points us to the one who would come to be the word incarnated. And it reminds us when we understand that, that the word isn't just ours conceptually. In Jesus Christ, the word is ours relationally. The one who has loved you and has given his life for you. How shall he not also now give you all things? In him we find riches that are incomparable. This is the claim of the scripture. This is the promise of God. Our role is to feed on it and to ask God to fulfill his promise through it. Let's pray. Father, we give thanks to you for the word for the word incarnate. For in Jesus we find life, not only the forgiveness of our sin, but the declaration of righteousness. Father, I pray that we would take you up on this challenge in sense and be a people who feed on the word and are therefore formed by the word and that in us we would find not only life renewed and revived, 
and joy, but wisdom and understanding as well. For Lord, in this is life that you promised. Be at work in us, we pray. Through Jesus Christ, amen.